part three. And the last time I spoke, we looked at Jesus' prayer for his disciples. I don't know how many of you remember that. In that prayer, to his father, Jesus prayed for their security. He prayed that God would protect them from the evil one. He prayed for their assurance of salvation. He prayed for their joy. He prayed for their evangelistic outreach, their mission. And now he prays for their unity. This is the last part of the prayer, right before he's going to suffer, be crucified, shed his blood, and die. He's praying for unity for the church. But his prayer was not just for his disciples. Now, you've got to remember this, that when he was praying, his disciples were around him. They were listening to him. But he was praying for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? He was actually praying for you right before he went to the cross. might say, well, John, you know, don't forget, Christ became human. Right. But he never gave up his divinity. And in his divinity, he had you in mind, me in mind, sonship in mind, every single believer. Let's turn to John 17. We're going to look at verses 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me. And they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know you, that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this part of the scripture, that Jesus is deeply concerned about the unity of the church, not only with each other, but the church unity with you and your Father. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear today as I attempt to preach this short text in Christ's name. This is a story I'd like to read to you. I don't know the, the author of it, but it's going to bring home the point. Um, It's about a wealthy landowner in South India who had some very quarrelsome sons, always jealous of one another and always at strife among themselves. On his deathbed, he called them and divided his property among them. Then he called for some sticks to be brought, nicely tied into a bundle, and asked them one by one, beginning at the eldest, to break the bundle. So, so long as they were closely bound together, they could not break any of the sticks. Now we said to the eldest, untie the bundle and try to break the sticks singly. This was not difficult, and soon each of the sticks, broken one by one, lay before them in two pieces. The father thus taught them that united they stand, divided they fall. The church today, like any generation, needs to be unified. The church, like those sticks, like those sticks, when unified, was strong. And the church, if it's unified, will be a strong witness to the unbelieving world, which can't be broken. But when the church is divided, 
we crumble and break and fail to let our light shine before this dark world. Did not Jesus say a house divided against itself will fall? Did he not say that? But it's the Christian life that's filled with the Spirit of God, that's filled with the truth of God's Word, that promotes unity. Without the Spirit of Christ, there is no unity. Without the truth of the Scriptures, there can't be any unity. If a person is not a Christian, if a person is not born again, not regenerate, not baptized in the Spirit... He or she is not in unity with Christ and his church. It's impossible. If a person does not adhere to the truth of Christ, there is no unity. But even Christians, and hear this, even Christians can obstruct unity. And here's what I want to propose to you tonight. Christ has prayed for your unity. It's past tense. He has already prayed for your unity with Him, with His Father, and with His church. There's three points I want to bring to you tonight. Point one, Christ has already prayed for you. Be comforted knowing that Christ has already prayed for you. And, which I'll talk about later, Christ is still praying for you. Number two, Christ prayed that you would be with Him in eternity. And witness the fullness of his glory. Can you imagine that? Christ then was praying for you to be with him in eternity and see the fullness of his glory. We don't see the fullness of his glory yet. And point three, Christ prayed that you grow deeper in the knowledge and the love of the Father. Let's look at point one. Christ has already prayed for you. Verse 20 again. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. It's hours before Jesus' death. I mean, literally hours before his death. And we see Jesus' heart through this magnificent prayer. The prayer that he prayed was not some dispassionate, unemotional, nonchalant prayer. Jesus prayed passionately for you that night. I could picture... Jesus standing up looking at the Father. Father, let them be one as we are one. Anything Jesus did for the Father was with passion. Believe me. We can do things half-heartedly. But Jesus did things wholeheartedly and passionately. And as I said before, his prayer was not just for his disciples who were around him that night. It was for you. Jesus interceded for you and every believer since then. And the last time I preached, when I finished, I don't know if you remember, Pastor Brian got up and he gave some final thoughts of my message, like we do anytime anybody preaches. We give final thoughts, we come up. Um, he said, the reason you're sitting here tonight is because Christ prayed for you. See, Christ prayed for those who would believe in him through the apostles' word. You believe the apostles' word. How? Through the word of God. When it was preached to you. Christ through the Holy Spirit gave the apostles his word. They wrote, they penned the New Testament. In other words, that was his gospel. And they proclaimed it to others. And others believed it. And others proclaimed it. And still others believed it. All the way down through the ages. and Up until the gospel came to you. And guess what? You preach it, and others will believe it. And whoever believes the gospel is believing the apostles' words. And that's why Jesus said, I do not only ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. So every time you preach the gospel to somebody, every time you share Christ with somebody, that's the apostles' word. What exactly did Jesus pray for here? Well, I said it. He prayed for the unity of the church. The reason why we have spiritual unity today is because Christ prayed 2,000 years ago for this. This was his deep concern. And guess what? This should be our deep concern. 
But sometimes we look at the church, it's so divided, it's so divided that we can't help but think, maybe we're not as concerned as we should be. I mean, Jesus prayed this right before he died. Right before he died, he's praying for the unity of the church. How important do you think that is? Listen, I don't care if you listen to me tonight, but please listen to the word of God tonight. The church needs to be concerned about unity. Is that the only concern? Of course not. The church needs to be concerned about holiness. Without holiness, no one shall see the Lord, the writer of Hebrews told us. Peter said in the first chapter, the 16th verse, he said, Be ye holy, for I am holy. The church needs to be concerned about love. That we ought to love one another. Jesus commanded his followers, Love one another as I have loved you. And this command is reiterated throughout the New Testament. The church needs to be concerned about missions. Jesus, after his resurrection, right before his ascension, said, go and make disciples of all the nations. So there are other concerns. Nobody's arguing about that. However, the dominant concern is oneness, unity in his body, his church. Can you have, truly have biblical love without unity? No. Can you really walk in holiness without unity? No. Or can we be effective witnesses for Christ when the church is fragmented? Absolutely not. But Christ has already prayed for your unity. You were in Christ's mind the night he prayed. I think some of you don't believe that. You were in Christ's mind the night he prayed. He was thinking of you. If you're a Christian, he was thinking of you. Remember something. Jesus Christ was fully God, fully man. Right? Maybe in his humanity, of course, he couldn't think of all of us. But make no mistake about it. In his divinity, he had you in mind. He was thinking of you. And I could preach this message to you and it should bear witness in your hearts. Why? Because I'm saying it? No. Or because because I'm some great speaker? No. Because Jesus already prayed it. That's why I could preach this with confidence. And God the Father hears and answers God the Son's prayer every single time. And as believers, you and I already unified in Christ. If Christ is in me and Christ is in you, we are positionally already unified. We are unified with every single believer, past, present, and future, namely his church. The, this unity, as some have tried to make it, or some have tried to define it, is not speaking about economical ecumenical unity. This is not speaking of the Roman Catholics and the Protestants becoming unified. It's not talking about that, as some have tried to make it. Nor is it talking about those who call themselves Christians, but deny the essential doctrines of the faith. There is no unity there. I'm not talking about being unified with those who don't hold to the essential doctrines. Could we be unified with Jehovah Witnesses? Could we be unified with Mormons? No. And there are some that have crept into the church, and we should not be unified with them either. Say, what do you mean, John, they crept into the church? Well, there's some false teachers that have crept into the... the, I'm not talking about necessarily sonship, but the universal church. Jude said it. If you don't believe me, read Jude. Jude said they crept in unnoticed. We're not to unify ourselves. We're, matter of fact, we're, we're to mock them and stay away from them. Those who deny the essential doctrines of the faith. And if I named some of them to you tonight, you'd be, your head would spin and say, I didn't know 
he was a, a heretical teacher. There are some that deny the divinity of Christ. Namely, the word of faith teaches. Could we be one with them? No, absolutely not. Jesus said to the Pharisees, unless you believe that I am he, and in the Greek it's not I am he, it's, an I, it's I am, ego I me, which means divinity. He says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Could we be unified with that? No. Unity, what he's talking about is spiritual unity. Unity that centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's who we are unified with. Unity because the same Holy Spirit that dwells in every believer. We're unified because we have the same Holy Spirit that dwells in us. Paul told the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 13. He says, for one in spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And all were made to drink in one spirit. So when you were born again, the spirit of God baptized you. And we all have the same spirit. That's why we're unified. Unity because of our common faith. Paul told Titus, a true child in a common faith. He was a true child in the common faith. Jude called it a common salvation. That is what our unity is based on. Our common salvation, our common faith. <clears throat> unity, <clears throat> as Dr. Carson says, is a common adherence to the apostolic gospel. Truth unites genuine believers. Did you ever hear this? Listen, I'm a Christian 40 years and I've heard this a lot. Did you ever hear this? Doctrine divides. Does doctrine divide? It does. It divides the true Christians from the false Christians. It divides the sheep from the goats. Truth unites the genuine believers. You read Acts of the Apostles and you see they were united because of the doctrines that the Apostles taught. The true doctrines of the, of the essential faith that we have. Listen to what Charles Haddon Spurgeon said. How many of you ever heard of Charles Haddon Spurgeon? He was the greatest preacher that Britain ever produced. He was great. I mean, anytime I read any of his stuff, I'm moved. I'm always moved. Listen to what he says. He says, he, by the way, he was a contemporary of your D.L. Moody. He says, to remain divided is sinful. So he's saying, it's not good to be divided. Did not our Lord pray that they may be one, even as we are one? John 17, 22. A chorus of ecumenical voices keep harping the unity tune. What they are saying is Christians of all doctrinal shades and beliefs must come together in one visible organization. Regardless, unite, unite. Such teaching is false, reckless, and dangerous. Truth alone must determine our alignments. Truth comes before unity. Unity without truth is hazardous. Our Lord's Prayer in John 17 must be read in its full context. Look at 17. Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. Only those sanctified through the word can be one in Christ. To teach otherwise is to betray the gospel. So basically, Spurgeon is saying, just because a church is called Christian... Doesn't mean that genuine believers, the true church, are united with them if they don't hold to the essentials of the Christian faith. That's the bottom line. Unity has always been in the heart of God, always since day one. Israel, they were one nation, they were a theocratic nation under God, they were unified under God and under the law of Moses. They were separate from all the other nations. It was always in his heart. Matter of fact, Ezekiel chapters 34 and 37 talk about the future of the greater David. When I say the greater David, we're talking about Jesus Christ. King David was the lesser David. Because through him was going to come the greater David, Jesus Christ. And 
Ezekiel talks about this greater David who will be the shepherd of his people. A unified people. And this was fulfilled when Christ came. Jesus said in John 10.16, And he said, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be what? One unified flock and one shepherd. Now unity, let me make something clear. Unity does not make, it does not mean that we're not going to have differences. We will certainly have differences. Genesis 2.24 tells us that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Husbands and wives are united, right? Through marriage. But they're different. My wife and I are united. Not only in the covenant of marriage, but in Christ. But yet we're so different. She likes the winter. I like the summer. She likes applesauce with her pork chops. I don't. We're different. We're different. There's okay. It's okay to there's, there's, there's unity in diversity. But we're unified in our marriage. We're unified in Christ. And at the same time, we have differences. First Corinthians 12, 12. For just as the body is one and has members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body. So it is with Christ. We are different members of one body. We have different gifts, all from the same spirit that dwells in our hearts. In the church, there's different giftings. We're diverse, but yet we're one. We can even disagree, listen to this, we can disagree on the non-essentials of doctrine, but still be in unity. One may say, Christ will return after the millennium. And some may say, no, before the millennium. Some believe the church will be raptured before the tribulation starts. Some will say, no, Christ will rapture the church in the middle of the tribulation. And some will say, no, the church is going to go through the tribulation and then the church will be raptured. And then some will even say, no, there's no really tribulation. We're going through the tribulation since the time of Christ. Do we divide over that? Of course not. Why would we divide over that? There's going to be non-essentials that we're not going to divide over. But there is no unity with Christ or his church if you deny any of the essential teachings of the Christian faith. Deny the divinity of Christ, the virgin birth, that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and so on. We don't have any unity or fellowship. Matter of fact, the Bible commands us not to unify with people that will deny the essential doctrines and call themselves Christians. Now to understand the unity of the church, I think we need to understand the unity of the Trinity because it really forms the pattern, the pattern for us. Verse 21, the first half, it says that they may all be one. Listen to this conjunction. Just as, it's a conjunction, there's a purpose here. As you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. See, the Father and the Son are so united that that's why Jesus could say in John 10.31, or John 10.30, I and the Father are what? One. They are so united that, I love what Dr. Carson says, he says the Father is actually in the Son so much so that we can be told that it is the Father who is performing the Son's works. I thought Jesus was doing the works, but this is so one. And he cites John 14.10. This is so one that, that John says this, 
Or Jesus says this through the Gospel of John. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus said, my Father is working and I'm working. The unity in the triune God is so amazing and we need to pattern our lives after that. And yet, they are distinguishable. For example, the Father elects. Sin is for salvation. The Son redeems. Sin is for salvation. The Spirit calls. Sin is for salvation. They're equal, right? But diverse in their roles. And I know people, sometimes people, when we talk about roles in marriages especially, or in the church, people get offended at that. Jesus never got offended. Jesus submitted to the Father. The Holy Spirit submitted to the Father and the Son. There was no ego trip in the Trinity. From all eternity. We need to understand and distinguish the roles within the church. They're one in nature, authority, will, power, honor, glory. And yet they are distinct in, in roles and functions. You've heard of the Nicene Creed. We, we read the Nicene Creed today and it's, and it's short and formed. The Athanasian Creed, I want to read this in a little section how unified the, the Trinity is. It says that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence for there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, Another of the Holy Ghost, but the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-equal. And the church patterns its unity after the triness of the, the triune God. Now, once again, or I should say this, you know, becoming one with God doesn't mean we become divine. It doesn't mean that. And here are a few ways we are one with God. We are one with the Father and the Son in our desire to glorify God. The, the Son glorified the Father. The Father glorified the Son. And Paul said, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. So we have that same desire, the way the Father and the Son have the desire, to glorify God. We are united with God in our mission. God sent Jesus to save lost sinners. The church is sent by Christ to evangelize lost sinners. We are also united in truth. Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. In verse 17, we are united in holiness. Peter said, be ye holy, for I am holy. We are united in love. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. First John tells us that God is love. Romans 5 tells us that the love of God was poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So as believers, we are one with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And how glorious is that? I mean, if you tell anybody, if you told a non-believer, I'm one with God, they would think you're nuts. They would think you're crazy. But God says that. We're one. Without becoming divine. Now, Dr. John MacArthur says, though not to the same infinite divine extent, the spiritual life and power that belongs to the Trinity belongs also in some way to believers and is the basis for the church's unity. How are we to walk in unity? We live in unity with God. That's the best way we can live in unity with each other is live in unity with God. How? We abide in the vine who is Christ. Christ is divine. We are the branches. For apart from the vine, we can do nothing. When you and I are truly abiding in the vine, we will live in unity with the church. A.W. Tozer. How many of you heard of A.W. Tozer? In his book, The Pursuit of God, he said this. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must, be, must individually bow. 
So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. So, you tune 100 pianos to one tuning fork, they're all going to be in tune. If we look to Christ and abide in Christ, we're going to be in unity. We desperately need God's power and grace to accomplish this, don't we? The unity of the church comes through the glory of Christ in us. Why did Christ give the church his glory? Unity. Verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. What is this glory? Well, scholars debate this, but I think it's safe to say it's the spiritual life and power that belongs to the Trinity that now dwells in you. It's also the message of the gospel handed down to us through Jesus' first disciple. That's the glory. In other words, this glory that Christ gives his church is the gospel that transforms the believer's life into spiritual life and power that we may be one as Jesus and his Father are one. Some of you may have a hard time with this because you look at your life and all you can see is the failures of your life and the sin that's in your life and that you're less than perfect. You repented. You genuinely trusted in Christ. You desire to live in holiness, but you think, how can I display the glory of God? Or how can I be with one with Christ and his church? Why would God give me this glory? And the best illustration I know how to give you and how to show you how God delights in giving you his glory and making you one with him and his church is an earthly family. As a husband and father, it's my delight to share everything I own with my wife and my children. And for my wife, it's the same. How much more does God desire to give those things to you who Christ died for? He gives you his glory, not based on your merits, but based on his merits. Don't look at your life, look at his, and be filled with his glory. That's one of the problems we have as, as sinful human beings. We look at ourselves, but we don't look to the glory of Christ. You know what happens? I want you to hear this. You know what happens when the church lives in unity with each other and the church lives in unity with God you know what happens it convinces the world that God is real it convinces the world that the church belongs to God it convinces the world that they are loved by God it convinces the world that Christ is sent by God a fragmented church will never convince the world that you belong to God that you're a new creation in Christ. Why would they believe that? When they see this unity in the church. Why? The fragmented church will never convince the world that they are loved by God. Never mind, for God so loved the world. Could you imagine? We, we try to say, for, we try to witness to someone, and we try to say, for God so loved the world, and they see us fighting. How could they believe when they witness such a lack of love and unity in the church? Could you understand why Jesus prayed for unity before he left this earth? Why he prayed for you to be unified? Why he's telling you and he's telling me to drop your petty differences? I'm talking about petty differences. Not saying there's not a time... There's always a time for confrontation. There's always a time for discipline. The church has to give discipline, Matthew 18. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the petty differences. If somebody rubbed us wrong, 
So we don't forgive them. And it breaks the unity of the church. You know what Dr. Kent Hughes says? He says, unity is an evangelistic necessity. He also said, he was quoting Thomas Manton, the English Puritan. He said, Manton said, the visions in the church breed atheism in the world. And if that's true, what does unity breed? Hughes answers that question. He says, it builds belief in the world. In other words, if we're in disarray, the world will not believe, and they might as well be atheist. If on the other hand, we're unified in our hearts and purpose, and we lift up Christ, all men will be drawn to him. So that's the point one. Christ has already prayed for you. And by the way, he's still praying for you at the right hand of God, as the writer of Hebrews tells us. He's always, he always lives to make intercession for them. Are you comforted by that? Because I am. Point two. Christ prayed that you would be with him in eternity and witness the fullness of his glory. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me, where I am to, I'm sorry, where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. How grateful I am to have my sins forgiven. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. But how grand will it be? I want you to get this with me. To be in the Lord's presence and the fullness of his glory. Remember in the Synoptic Gospels? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are the Synoptic Gospels. When Jesus was transfigured right before Peter, James, and John. And they beheld his glory for a period of time. I mean, the Bible says that he became dazzling white. Because his inner divinity came outward. And they were seeing his glory for a few moments. They got a glimpse of the fullness of Christ's glory. And we get a glimpse also through the scriptures and salvation at times, don't we? But one day, the full brightness of his glory, we're going to behold. Listen, this is a guarantee. If you belong to Christ, you will be with him and behold his glory in his fullness forever and ever and ever. Do you know why? I could say it's a guarantee with assurance. Because Jesus said it. Jesus prayed for that. And his prayers are 100% answered. Jesus wants every one of you, every one of his disciples, to be with him forever and experience his glory. You know, when I speak to Christians sometimes... It's not hard to tell if they were in the word frequently or sparsely. It's not hard to tell if they have been spending time with the Lord in prayer and in worship or not. And the reason why I say it's not hard is because they may talk about what's going to, what it's going to be like in heaven, but they hardly talk about the presence of God. They might be talking about the streets of gold. That's a good thing to talk about. Or the dog and cat being there with them. I mean, you know, I've heard people that are so concerned that the animals are going to be with them. But they never talked about the glory of God or being in His presence. You and I should be longing for His presence. For his glory. You and I should be thinking about what it's going to be like in heaven when we behold him. I mean, Revelation really talks about that. It doesn't talk about our cats or our dogs being with us. I'm not saying, you know, of course, I'm not saying anything about animals. I love animals. I love cats and dogs. But that should never be our main interest. That should not be our passion. That should not excite us about heaven. Yes, I'm excited about being free from the presence of sin. Yes, I'm excited about the magnificent beauty of heaven. Yes, 
I'm excited about all these things. But the greatest is the one who created all of that. We will worship the creator, not the created things. And we will be like him. We will be like him. John the Apostle got a glimpse of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he could say with confidence in John, the first chapter, we have seen his glory. Not only will we see him, which is the greatest excitement, but we will be like him. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. We will be like him as much as he is without becoming divine. Without becoming God. That will never happen. We'll never be God. But we will be like him. We will be transformed into his image to the max. Without his deity. We will share his glory. And I can't wrap my finite mind around that. I, I, I really can't. It's so hard to understand that. Considering how sinful I am. But by faith I believe it. Even though I don't understand it. You don't have to understand everything in the Bible to believe it. Do you understand the born again experience? Do you understand how God gave you a new heart? How he took out the the heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh? But we believe it. You're not going to understand everything. God does not call us to understand everything. But he does call us to trust his word. Whatever he says. That's the way I've learned to live my life. And I'm still learning. And that's what Jesus desires for his church. This is what he wants. You know why this is a reality? Because he prayed this to the Father. And the Father always, as I said before, answers his prayers. The Father loved the Son from eternity past. He loved them before the foundation of the world. In other words, the glory Jesus had and the love of the Father that he had for his Son was before Adam was created and before the universe was spoken into existence. Jesus' glory and the Father's love was from all eternity. It's not something new. It's not something that's thought. He didn't say to the Son, I'm going to love you now. He loved them from all eternity. There was always that love between the Father and Son. No beginning. His glory and the Father's love had no beginning. And will have no end. Sharing Christ's glory and being with Him forever is because the Father loved the Son. And you and every believer is a gift to the Son from the Father. John 17, 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. It was a gift. You're a gift. Out of the world. Yours they were. And you gave them to me. It's a gift. And they have kept your word. Believers are a gift to the Son. From the Father. So point one. Christ has already prayed for you. Point two. Christ prayed that you would be with him in eternity. And witness the fullness of his glory. And the final point. Christ prayed that you will grow deeper in knowledge. And love of the Father. Verse 25 and 26. Excuse me, I'm getting a little raspy here. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you, that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. In this final segment of Jesus' magnificent prayer, he prays that not only that we know his Father, but that we continue to grow in that knowledge. So, don't be satisfied where you're at with the knowledge of God. And we we also grow in his love. He starts off by saying, O righteous Father, God is totally righteous. David tells us 
in Psalm 145, the Lord is righteous in all his ways. In other words, he always does what's right. And he himself is the final standard of what is right. He stands righteously opposed to the unrighteous world that does not know him. Jesus made it perfectly clear that he wasn't praying for the unrighteous world. The world has no right to Christ's intercessory prayer. The only right they have is judgment of God because they reject the free gift of eternal life. We deserve the judgment of God. But we're going to get salvation, eternal life because of Christ. Jesus was praying for the ones the Father gave him out of the world. He wasn't praying for everybody. I said that the last time. And even though we were unrighteous at one time before we trusted Christ, we have now been made righteous by Christ's atoning work. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So even though the unrighteous world does not know God, Christ has always known the Father from all eternity. And he has made him known to you and to me. Not the world. How? Through the indwelling, through the indwelling Holy Spirit and the Scriptures. You want to know how you know God? The Scriptures and the Spirit. The Scriptures we read and the Spirit makes it alive to us. Also, the believer knows Jesus came from God. The world may not believe it. Most of the world believes Jesus was a good teacher. They don't believe he really came from God. They might believe in him like they believe in Buddha or Muhammad. They don't believe he came from God. So the world may not believe it, but we understand and we know that Jesus is from God and he is God. This is not just an intellectual head knowledge. I'm not talking about knowing God intellectually in our, in our minds. This is a deep, deep, intimate, experiential knowledge of the Father. It began at the moment of your salvation. And now we are being sanctified and this knowledge is now growing, isn't it? Don't you feel like you know God more now, the Father now, than you did when you first believed? Christ is continuously revealing His Father to us through His Word and through the Spirit. Next Sunday we're going to be starting a new series for the adult Bible study, Knowing God. If you have a desire to know God more than you do, come to the class. And I pray, my prayer is that you're not satisfied in your knowledge of God, in your present knowledge of God, but that it will consume you to want to know Him even more. And this is amazing. Jesus prays that the same love that the Father has for His Son dwells in your heart along with Jesus Himself. The second half of verse 26, Jesus said, The love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now this, I've said this before. When I, when I first got saved and I heard this, I had, a, I had trouble with that. I had trouble believing that the Father loves the Son as much as He loves me. I, I consider that blasphemous. But it's not. The Scripture teaches that. He loves you as much as He loves His Son. Not to accept that is really sin because you, now you're calling God a liar. We really don't understand the price Jesus paid on the cross, do we? The price was so great that God loves you as much as His Son. Anyone who's in Christ, He loves Him as much as His Son. Listen to Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 19. And then we'll close. <clears throat> For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may be rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know, hear me, and to know the love of, the love of God or the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I, I mean, it says it all. 
That we may be filled with the fullness of God. That we may know the love that Christ has for us that surpasses all knowledge. That we may know that the Father loves us as much as He loves His Son. Please, desire to know the Father and His deep love for you even more. Don't be satisfied where you're at. As a Christian for many, many years, I'm not satisfied where I'm at. I want to grow in that love. And I want to grow in that knowledge. Peter says it this way. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let's conclude here. And probably the greatest prayer in all scripture, the heart of Jesus here is laid bare. As I said in part one, if you remember, if you want to see Jesus' heart, if you want to really learn how to pray selflessly, if you want to know how to pray for others, what they really need, then study John 17, verses 1 through 26. It's a spiritual x-ray machine looking directly into the heart of Christ. Verses 20 through 26 was for you. I want you to go home and read that tonight over again. And own that. Own that scripture. Be encouraged tonight that Christ has already prayed for you. For unity with him, his father and his church. That's what he prayed for. That was point one. Point two was that you would be with him eternally and experience his full glory. That's point two. And point three, that you would grow deeper in the knowledge and love of your Abba Father. When we have this mindset, guess what? Nothing will be able to break the unity of the believers. And the world will come to know Jesus Christ as Lord. It doesn't mean everybody, of course. But the world can now see what they're saying must be true. Because look how they love, look how they love each other and look how unified they are. Let me conclude one quote from Warren Wiersbe, who was summarizing the whole prayer, not just the part we looked at today. The whole prayer from 1 to 26. As you review this prayer, you see the spiritual priorities that were in the Savior's heart. The glory of God, the sanctity of God's people, the unity of the church, the ministry of, this, of, the God, of, the ministry of sharing the gospel with a lost world. We today would be wise to focus on these same priorities. One day each of us will have to give an account of his or her ministry. It is a solemn thought that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give our final report. And he, and he concludes with this. I trust that we will be able to say, I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ has already prayed for our unity. That Christ has prayed that we would be one in our love, in our purpose, in our motives. That we would be one sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would be one in loving each other as Christ loved us. God, help us. Help us to repent when we need to repent, when we cause disunity in the church. Some of us here may have caused disunity in the church. God, I pray that anyone here who has caused disunity will repent and understand and experience your forgiveness and your grace. Help us, Father, to be one with each other. Help us to put our petty differences aside so we can be so one that the world would say, yes, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Christ's name we pray.